It's a strange thing um, giving a Dharma talk when you're packing up a life of 20 years and moving because it's a bit, you know, you're in a particular mode of functioning, making an inventory of what's in what box and then plopping into this evening. So I'd like to express my gratitude to Kavya Siddhi who had the idea of doing a short ritual before this for the women order members to mark change really because I'm leaving, Manisha's leaving and Dharmota is leaving later in the year. And um, I arrived late. I blamed it on the traffic but that was a little bit dishonest. I actually left home late. <laughs> I left home late because I'd been out during the day and I was very tired and I went home and I needed to do a body scan which is one of the ways that I've learned to manage my life. So I prioritised the body scan, got here late, feeling slightly flustered and we just sat there and um, we did the Maitri Mantra and in Kavya City read a list of all the women order members in Manchester over the 20 years that I've been involved and I was one of the first women order members in Manchester. There was Jai Davy and Kalina Prabhar beforehand and then we formed the first chapter with um, myself, Akasha Shuri, probably someone else, I'm sorry, my memory's not what it was. Uh, anyway, so she read this list and I suddenly found myself really crying, which felt such a relief because it was like the emotion of, of sorrow, of parting, because I've been in Manchester for from 35, 36 years old to 55 years old, which is a very significant part of a human life, isn't it? It's a, I think for a lot of people it's the most productive years. I was saying to the others, well, I think I've been a bit of a late starter, so because I didn't really get going until my mid-40s because of my, my back. So um, I haven't peaked yet. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, it's a very, very significant period of time and I just felt so much love for these conditions that I've had in Manchester and all the friendship that I've had and the extraordinary kindness and care um, because I have, you know, I have been really disabled at times and it has been tough for everybody but people have been unfailingly generous and um, gentle and firm. You know, firm with me. I've had very strong feedback at times about my behaviour in relation to my back, which has been like gold. And someone says to you very firmly, why are you doing that? And you think, oh yeah, why am I doing that? So I felt this... Um, sorry, I need to speak up a bit, don't I? I felt this, this love and tears which was really good so now I've kind of got this talk and I think oh god you know. <laughs> how do I get this off the page and out to you in a way that is in connection with how I'm feeling right now but um, I think it's all tied all ties up very well um, and the Amitabha connection I want to say more about that because um, I think that is the in a way the most important thing that our kind of gateway our portal to the ideal to the possibility of being completely free mentally emotion and emotionally in this world and the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas they they're kind of um, archetypal manifestations of that possibility um, and I've got Emitov behind me right now that's so amazing isn't it he's kind of pumping it out I can it's brilliant yeah so but I, I will attempt to say something vaguely in line with the topic of this evening um, change your mind to change the world. 
So I'm going to read the first verse from the Dhammapada to begin, which is one of the oldest Buddhist texts. Very pithy verses. Um, it, it, I think in a way, if you carried the Dhammapada around in your pocket, that's all you would need, really. If you re reflected very, very deeply on the Dhammapada, you'd have the whole teachings. The very first verse. All that we are is the result of what we have thought. It is founded on our thoughts. It is made up of our thoughts. If people speak or act with an evil thought, pain follows them, as the wheel follows the foot of the ox that draws the carriage. All that we are is the result of what we have thought. It is founded on our thoughts. It is made up of our thoughts. If people sp speak or act with a pure thought, happiness follows them, like a shadow that never leaves them. This is a quote. They abused me, they beat me, they defeated me, they robbed me. In those who harbour such thought, hatred will never cease. They abused me, they beat me, they defeated me, they robbed me. In those who do not harbour such thoughts, hatred will cease. For hatred does not cease by hatred at any time. Hatred ceases by love. This is an old rule. Simple verse, but so profound. That's really telling us that it all starts with the mind. It all starts with the human mind. And I think when, when the Buddha's using the word thought, I think he's meaning the mental, emotional continuum. He's not just meaning thought in the kind of Western clinical sense, but this, this, the, the inner generation of mental and emotional uh, momentum. If it's moving towards hatred, we're going to suffer if it's moving towards the opposite of hatred, towards love, then one will flourish as a human being and then you'll have a huge effect on other people. If you're a person who's um, unskillful, it really shows, doesn't it? You know, we sh it shows in our face, it shows in our body language, it shows in our gestures, it shows in our speech. And then every single person we come into contact with, they're affected by that. If you're a person who's Who's, who's, who's bountiful, generous, loving, kind, caring, every single person you meet, they, they catch a little bit of that. And I, th I think it really is that simple, this idea of change your mind to change the world. If we really guard our mental states and our emotional states and train, train ourselves to be skillful, then every single interaction we have is changing the world a little bit for the better. And I feel very, very passionate about that. And here it is, first verse of the Dhammapada, that's what the Buddha taught. So mind is all important in Buddhism, mind in the sense of mind and emotions, thoughts and emotions. The Dalai Lama apparently said at some point recently, I'm not quite sure where, if every eight-year-old in the world is taught meditation, we will eliminate violence from the world within one generation. It's quite amazing, isn't it? Now, it's quite vague, what does he mean by meditation? But I think it's if every eight-year-old in the world was taught mind training with ethical guidance, ethical principles of non-violence, and learned to control their impulses with the ethical framework of Buddhism, you learn to control your imp impulses towards violence and to cultivate impulses towards love, then the world would be transformed. And I think it's, it's an eight-year-old because children are so malleable. That's where a lot of the learning is happening, isn't it, when we're children? There's another expression, isn't there? Give, give me an eight-year-old and I'll give you a man or something. Does anyone know that quote? 
So who said that? Jesuits. Jesuits, okay. What did they say, give me a child of seven and I'll give you a man? Yeah, so it's the same idea, isn't it, that that's where a lot of our kind of patterning is being laid down. But, but really the Dalai Lama is saying, change the mind of a child towards goodness and we can eliminate violence in the world. Very, very optimistic statement, perhaps not to be taken literally, but it's nonetheless a very profound um, idea of intentionality and mental skillfulness and how helpful that can be. So it's not only being aware of one's thoughts and emotions, but also having the ethical guidelines of Buddhism, which helps us discern which are the ones to pay attention to and to cultivate, and then which are the ones to um, let go of. You know, just let them go. So we've got the ethical principles of non-violence, of generosity, of truthful speech, of mindfulness, and of sexual good conduct. So we've got everything from the Buddha's teachings. And my, my, um, my own experience and what we teach a lot at Breathworks and in, in Buddhist mindfulness retreats is the idea that awareness is what leads to choice. You can't choose how you're going to behave unless you're aware. So this primary training of mindfulness training, which is absolutely central to the Buddhist teaching, it's in order so that we, we can actually know what's going on right now, what am I thinking, what am I feeling, and what is the appropriate response to this so that I can choose a skillful, um, to go down a skillful path rather than an unskillful path. We cannot do that if we're not aware. So the, apparently the very last words of the Buddha to Ananda, his disciple, were, with mindfulness strive on. That's the last thing he said, with mindfulness strive on. And really that's this awareness training so that we can continually make skillful choices. And through that, we can, I believe, profoundly change the world. You know, that though each one of those choices leads to all kinds of consequences for oneself and for other people. So what I thought I would do, given that I'm leaving tonight, is I would talk about um, four areas where I feel these conditions here, the conditions of the Dharma, the conditions of the Sangha, the conditions of this Buddhist center, of the teachings I've received, Four ways where I feel I've been able to turn around my own mind, if you like, or my own thinking, and to have a bit of a breakthrough. So four ways in which I think I have changed my own mind, and thus I've changed my own world and hopefully the people I've come into contact with. So I thought that would be quite interesting just to, to do a bit of review, 20 years of practice, in these conditions, and what have been the real sort of key aha moments for me personally. And I think they're kind of universal. So I'm hoping that many of you will recognize similar traits and hopefully you might leap over a few years of my own delusion. And you think, oh yeah, I could do that now. That would be great. Because it took me a long time, some of these things. So the first area is learning to turn towards whatever I was experiencing with kindness and curiosity. Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite in the fabric of Tree Ratna these days, this idea of turning towards your experience. But when I was practicing in the 80s, I didn't hear that teaching. I'm quite sure people were saying it, but I wasn't ready to hear it. So my initial motivation was I just wanted to get rid of suffering. Yeah? And I think that's very common. Yeah? We, we come to a Buddhist center because our lives aren't quite working. And in my case, I heard only the third noble truth. I have very, very selective hearing. 
So the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth is that there is unsatisfactoriness, there's discontent. Second Noble Truth is there's a cause of that, which is craving. Third Noble Truth, it's possible to be free, to, uh, there is an end of suffering. And the Fourth Noble Truth, there's a path to lead to the cessation of suffering or discontent. I only heard the third one, which is yippee, if you're a Buddhist you can get rid of all your suffering. Now that sounds very naive. Um, and I, will, I probably wouldn't have admitted that, but I think we do selectively take on bits of the Dharma that we want and we sort of stick it onto our life in a way that is often quite um, misguided. I don't, I've done that a lot. You know, I've looked back and I thought, oh, I really didn't understand that teaching at all. So I would say I spent quite a lot of the early years of my Dharma practice just trying to escape myself escape my life, escape samsara, escape dukkha. And I misinterpreted teachings like the other shore or nirvana as being a bit like heaven. So if I practiced enough, my, all my pain would go away and I'd go to heaven. I'd go to Buddhist heaven. <laughs> and life would be perfect. And we, you know, we, we do use the language of perfection in Buddhism. Like I think the Buddha is sometimes called the perfect one which of course is a metaphor, but I took it all a bit literally. And I thought, I want to be perfect, I want to overcome all my suffering. Found this fantastic path, because that's what I'm promised, fantastic. And of course it didn't work like that. So the more I strived after this um, naive goal, the more tense I got, and also the more I felt I was failing. So that's one of the problems with misappropriating the ideal in a totally unrealistic way is we never achieve it and then we always think we're failing so then we try even harder. So I was sort of stuck in this loop of overly trying. Overly trying, that's interesting. It was very trying. But overly um, efforting. Um, because I was basically very, I was just trying to get away from myself. Yeah. And it really wasn't until um, the late 90s, I think, that I really... Um, understood that it's like I needed to do a 180 degree spin on the axis and I needed to turn back towards my life as it is and change my relationship to my life as it is rather than um, trying to fabricate some other better life. Yeah. And, uh, and I needed to be, be completely smashed up by my life to get that message. And I think that's partly because I'm a very willful person. I've got tremendous determination. I have got a bit of, you know, an iron rod inside me of some sort. And that means it takes me a very long time to get the message sometimes. Yeah. So you're quite lucky if you're not like me because you might get the message a bit earlier. <laughs> so I strived and strived and strived and strived. And then eventually it just was so not working and my, my, I was physically broken down, emotionally. Um, humiliated, you know, I've been practicing the Dharma for a decade and I'd still driven myself to a point of exhaustion again and again and again. So very, very gently, and I really don't know how it happened, it's very mysterious how it happened, but very gradually it's like I turned back and fell in love with my own life. Very, very beautiful. Sort of fell in love with my own life as it is and got to know my own life as it is. And then of course I realized there wasn't just pain there, there was also beauty and joy 
and, and the potential to be free and to be kind of perfected in a funny kind of way through turning back and becoming my own, my own lover in a way. So it was a very, very powerful shift from escapism to integration and to kindness because it's quite harsh when you're trying to avoid your own life and grasp onto some other fabricated ideal. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit punishing. So it was very gentle and very tender and very kindly to come back into my own body, into my own circumstances, into my own life. So what I've written down here, which is interesting, is I realised that I needed to not only drag my difficulties along like a sullen child, I needed to actively turn towards them with love and care, investigate them and then soften my resistance. Because it's a very resistant state to be in where you're just trying to escape your life all the time. And there were a lot of uh, very lovely images that came into my life around this time. I was very into ritual, very into myth. Um, I think because I, I kind of knew that I, I, I could not solve the problem of my life and the human condition conceptually. I sort of knew that trying to think my way out of these problems was a complete bottomless hole. I needed to step out of the conceptual and let something else in. So images, like in Buddhism, we have the image of the blue sky, don't we? The blue, the blue sky of enlightenment, the sky-like mind. And I suppose what, what I had done earlier is a bit like the blue sky was out there. I was here and I needed to sort of get out of here and up to there to experience the blue sky. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing to say this because it's also naive, but I think it's what we do. We've probably all got our own versions of these... Um, these are ways that we distort the teachings to our own end. So then I, uh, I, I did a lot of body work, body scanning, just dropping into the body again and again and again, softening. And, and for a while I felt that the blue sky lived at the bottom of the ocean. I really didn't know what that meant. But I suppose it's dropping into my body and and softening and softening, everything becomes more fluid and it is like the ocean. And then the ocean is another metaphor that's used in Buddhism quite a lot. Then the blue sky was at the bottom of the ocean. It wasn't out there at all. Or the blue sky was, if you go so far inside your body, you kind of go so far inside your cells and you just end up with space. So the blue sky is, in, is inside. It's like everything just starts to kind of dissolve away and you're just left with the blue sky. Another image I had around that time, which was lovely, was um, a tapestry. If you go to Chateau in France, they often have these tapestries, don't they? Big medieval um, things that are telling a scene. So it might be a, like a scene of hunting or something like that. And it looks solid, doesn't it? You, you think, you, here you are, you're looking at this thing on the wall and all the shapes all come together. So you, you see something that looks like it's... Um, it's a solid mass. Do you know what I mean? It look, it look, it's a coherent image. You think there's a person, there's a dog, there's a horse, there's a building. Yeah. So we sort of project this fixity onto it. And then, uh, and then I, I really reflected on it. If you went into that tapestry and you get really closer and closer and closer, you would just get threads. And then you get the space between the threads. And, and it was a bit like I wanted to live my life in the space between the threads of the tapestry. And that was a very, very powerful image at that time. 
And that, that was more true in a way than standing back and thinking there's a tapestry of a scene. And in a way that's a metaphor for life. We, we project solidity and fixity onto life all the time. And then we react to it. It really is quite crazy. We sort of make things up, we fix them, and then we react to them. So it was a bit like everything was starting to dissolve away. And it was very, very beautiful just being left with the, the space between the threads of the tapestry of my own life. Yeah. And now I really don't know where the blue sky is. I have no idea. Is it inside or outside or somewhere in between? Or is there an inside? Is there an outside? I'm not sure. But this idea of resting in, in spaciousness is still very, very dear to me. And it's very different from that escapist striving, um, aversive, you know, I hate my life, I want this other life attitude that I had for a long time. So that was the first sort of thing that um, I, I wanted to share with you. The next area is um, taking my practice off the cushion and into daily life. <coughs> it took me a long time to get this one. And I suppose socially engaged Buddhism is all about you know, getting off our cushions out into the world and benefiting people as much as we can. Clearly we, we need to meditate, but I'm, I'm meaning not seeing your, pra your practice about meditation exclusively or even primarily. Um, so so um, when I had my big collapse in 97 and I had these years afterwards that were really quite dark, I reflected very deeply and I realised, oh, this is the missing piece of the jigsaw. I had not figured out how to be mindful in my activities. So typically, and I think this is very common, so you may recognise this, typically I would meditate in the morning. I thought I was a good meditator. You know, I did it regularly. I, I, I used to feel more calm. I'd do the metabhavana, I would feel kinder and so on. So I'd do my meditation and I'd form an intention. Today's the day when I'm going to be mindful throughout the day. I'm going to remain aware of other people. I'm going to be skillful. Get up, come out of my meditation, have my breakfast, turn my computer on, someone comes to the door, and by about 10 o'clock or something, I'd be frazzled. And then, because I had these very sort of escapist, pushy, driven tendencies, I would just go back into my old habits of pushing and striving and contracting against life. Get to the end of the day completely shattered, and think, oh no, I've blown it again. I think tomorrow's another chance. What happens when you're in this loop is when you meditate the next day, effectively it's a kind of salvage operation of the wreckage of the day before. So in a way you're not really meditating in the sense of cultivating positive states. You're just sitting there trying to come back to neutral. And it's like, oh God, I feel so tired, I'm so knackered, a bit speedy. And after 40 minutes you kind of feel ready to face the day, but that's about it. And I realised that's what I was really trapped in. So my meditation practice was a salvage operation, it was not really a meditation practice. And then I realised well, what I need to do is I really need to come to grips with my behaviour in daily life. And I meditate for maybe 40 minutes, maybe sleep for 8 hours. That leaves a lot of hours when I'm losing it. Far more hours when I'm losing it than when I'm sitting on the cushion. And of course I was very, very motivated because my life was, you know, I, was, I, I couldn't really hardly do anything. Um, so there are advantages to being broken because you're very motivated to get yourself going again. And the stakes were very high. 
So, of course, the, one of the core teachings of the Buddha is Pratichyatamapada, that everything arises in dependence on causes and conditions. So I really took that to heart. If I was getting to the end of the day completely stressed out and frazzled and wrecked, that was because of conditionality. It wasn't random. It wasn't anyone's fault. It was because of, of my behavior, my intentions, my behavior, my actions, my speech, my habits. And the great thing about Pratichyatamapada is actually you can change everything. I wasn't stuck with my habits. I could change my habits, but I needed to bring positive intention and I needed to bring a great deal of discipline into my life. So I, um, I started finding out about something called pacing. And I started using a timer when I worked at my computer. So I've written both of my books, um, sitting at my computer for 20 minutes, and then the timer goes off and... Originally, I'd go and lie down for 15 minutes, but because my back's a lot better now, I just change my position, potter about for a bit, and then go back to work. That sounds so basic, but that changed my life more than meditation. It did, because I was, I was coming to grips with all the 16 hours when I wasn't meditating and not sleeping. Yeah. And um, this is something that we've really developed at Breathworks. I think we're very good on mindfulness in daily life. How do you have a momentum, a continuum of practice through all your moments, not just the ones when you're choosing to sit yourself on a cushion and be still. So we've got quite a few nice little slogans which I'll just share with you, which I think are helpful. Um, one of them is take a break before you need it. Because yeah. I think what most of us do as human beings is we just go until we can't go anymore. Yeah. Or you could call it take a break before you break. So you're always leaving a little bit of reserve in the tank. That is massively life-changing. Yeah, and you will be a, bit, a, a, a more consistent, reliable force for good in the world if you're not... Um, you know, often we're a bit misguided. We think if we give everything, then we're being really generous. But you're not, because then you're ending up a pauper and you've got nothing left to give to anyone else. So being very skillful and strategic, even a little bit cunning about, well, how do you use this precious resource of your human life to benefit the world? And pacing is very, very important, I think. So take a break before you need it. Uh, another very good one is when in doubt, breathe out. Because what we often do when we're stressed is we hold our breath. I think most of us do breath holding a lot of the time. And breath holding isn't a good thing to be doing physiologically. So when in doubt, breathe out. That's good, isn't it? So let's breathe out. Take a pee break. That's very good. And that means take a pause break. <laughs> so you can put stickers up all over the place. Take a pee break. Take a pause break. And another thing that I found very beneficial is something called a three-minute breathing space. So rather than thinking you, me you, you only do your meditation in a concentrated chunk on the cushion and then you blow out the rest of the day, you do your concentrated chunk, and then you have these little short mini meditations throughout the day. And three minutes is, re is really powerful. You can really change your mental states in three minutes. Come back to your body, come back to your breath. You know, climb out of the hamster wheel for a moment. And it's a great thing to do in meetings. Very, very good things to do in meetings. You can just set a timer, do one once in the hour, and everybody calms down and climbs off the hamster wheel and then you can get back into your discussion in a more mindful way. Um, 
so that's so this this idea of really taking conditionality very seriously Pratichit Samapada, everything arises in dependence on causes and conditions tattooing that on your heart and then choosing how choosing your behavior with great care and um, determination through your life is very important so I found well-being um, you know, greater well-being, and that means I'm able to do more for the world through working across a very broad front in daily life. So pacing, eating well, exercise, routine, sleeping, all these things that we might think, God, that's really basic. Actually, you can't really transform your mind for the sake of the world if you don't come to grips with these really basic things. Yeah. So three meals a day exercise and Jules I was talking to Jules about this this morning and she said well that all sounds really good but how do you how do you stay motivated which I thought was an excellent question because of course you know how many people have tried to go on a diet and then you know we can't sustain it we have new year's resolutions about I'm going to exercise and then we don't sustain it so I was thinking about that and uh, well I'm a bit lucky in this regard because my body is such that if I don't do these things I get such immediate feedback that it, that's far that's so unpleasant that actually the relative unpleasantness of having to do my exercises <laughs> far outweighs the great unpleasantness of a flare-up but I thought the other another thing which is worth reflecting on is um, do you really do each of you really believe you are a force for good in the world or you can be a force for good in the world yeah, that you have the potential to be a force for good in the world and I think if you really, really believe that, then you will do what you need to do to be a happy, healthy human being that can contribute to the world. So that's probably the question to ask ourselves. Do we really, really believe that? I think if you really believe that, you will prioritise setting up the conditions where you can flourish. Um, years ago, I was talking to Vasantra when I was in Wellington, actually. I was visiting my family, he happened to be there, and I think I was probably going on about, you know, I don't know where to live, and should I come back to New Zealand or not, and probably quite a kind of self-referential, self-indulgent conversation. And he said to me, you should see yourself as a resource. And I was like, wow. That was, it shocked me. Because it was, it was a long way away from how I did see myself. And also it shocked because I thought, yes, that's a, that's a good attitude to see ourselves as resources for the world. In a way, you could say that is the point of a, a, a dharmically aware human being, that our job is to be a resource in the world. So I find that quite interesting. So you could reflect on that as well. Do you see yourself as potentially or now a force for good in the world? And do you see yourself as a resource? So a little bit, maybe a resource isn't a very good word. Um, but maybe it's a very good word, I don't know. So you can think about that. And I'd just like to give you some um, quotes here from Hakuin, who's one of my great inspirations. Hakuin was a Buddhist monk in, I think, about the 15th century, who was a real character. I think he was probably very, very willful. And um, he kind of drove himself a bit crazy with koan practice. So koan practice is in the Zen tradition where you're given an insoluble problem and the only way to solve the problem is to in a way come at it from a completely different perspective so think it's things like what is the sound of one hand clapping 
well, you can't answer that, can you? And one of them is mu, M-U, which means no thing. So if you're in that tradition, you just go around going, mu, 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 mu. You're just saying it to yourself all the time, you know, no thing, no thing, no thing. And um, I think he probably had a bit of a breakdown. And uh, he then went away. It's not, people don't know if this is apocryphal or true, but he met a hermit. And basically the hermit gave him lots of meditations to get in his body. It's very interesting. So one of them was the goose egg, goose egg butter, something like that. Sorry, I can't remember the exact phrase, but you imagine you've got an egg of butter on your head, like a goose egg. And then you imagine that butter melting down through your whole body. So he had to do this practice, which is very like a body scan. He was told to take the koan to his hara. So take the koan out of his head and down here. And he was told to meditate through the soles of his feet. Yeah. Fantastic, fantastic guy. And he was a great um, um, reformer, that's what I'm looking at. So Zen at that point was a bit, a bit sort of staid and static. And so he came in and he really shook up the monasteries and shook up the tradition. And he gained enlightenment. And it's very, very beautiful, the description in, in his life story when he gains enlightenment, where he just suddenly sees things as they really are. And tears flow down his face, like if you had cut a, a knife in a sack full of rice and the rice pours out. And he had these tears pouring down his face when he gained enlightenment for the sake of all beings. And then he taught utterly tirelessly from that point to his death. He just taught and taught and taught. Because I think it's like if you, if you wake up, you realise that enormous, you've been given this huge gift of the truth. And you see everybody in the world going around with paper bags on their heads. And you think, oh God, they've got to know, they've got to wake up, I can tell them, I can help them. So he was a, he was a fantastic, fantastic teacher. And anyway, one of his great things was about practising in the midst of activity. That was one of his big things he, he, he talked a lot about. So here's a little quote from him. And this is contextual because I think the Zen at that time, the monks would just sort of basically sit around thinking they were already enlightened and wouldn't really do anything. He, he called them, these lazy monks, um, clothes hangers and rice bags. <laughs> So he was scathing of this, just you sit around, don't make any effort. And uh, so he said, practice certainly doesn't mean sneaking off to some mountain and sitting like a block of wood on a rock or under a tree, silently illuminating yourself. It means totally immersing yourself in your practice at all times and in all your daily activities, walking, standing, sitting or lying down. Hence, it is said that practice concentrated in activity is a hundred a thousand, even a million times superior to practice done in a state of inactivity. Yeah. So he was basically saying, take it out into every moment of your life, which is what I've been very inspired by. And Hakuin used this uh, gorgeous image of the lotus, which represents the kind of open heart, that blooms in the fire of activity. So you, your, your life becomes a lotus that blooms in the fire. Um, and this is from Padma Vajra, who gave a fantastic talk on this years ago, called Notes, Notes from a Talk on Hakuin. So do watch it if you get the chance. 
And he said that Hakuin said that to meditate in stillness and avoid activity, you will become so sensitive that the slightest activity will upset you. You just become precious, like a shellfish that has no water, like a monkey without its trees, like a lotus that withers near the fire. But he isn't saying don't meditate. He just says that meditation must go on all the time, on the cushion or off. You must always be engaged with the koan, or we can think the mystery. Make everything in your, in your life the koan. Make the mountains, rivers and the great earth as your meditation platform and the universe your meditation cave. Make yourself like the lotus that blooms in the fire. Bring your practice into the life of activity. Don't sit with your gold in solitude, but share it with others in the world. Sit with your gold and you become a very poor person. Grow your fire lotus that can never be destroyed. Let us grow the fire lotus, or how can we ever dream of entering the whiteness of understanding the great matter? And then Hakuin himself says, from one of his books, For such people, who are like lotuses in the fire, there is nothing but great joy, enough to dissolve the sky and shatter the iron mountains. They are to be compared with the lotus which, lotus which blossoms and becomes ever more beautiful and more deliciously scented as it gets nearer to the fire. And if you ask, how can this be? It is because the fire is itself the lotus, and the lotus is itself the fire. So I find all that very, very um, uh, inspiring. I do consider Hakuin to be one of my teachers, partly because I think temperamentally we're a little bit alike. And, uh, and it's just like his heart blew open. He went from being this very intense, kind of heady young man, I think, to being this person who's just pouring the Dharma out into the world ceaselessly and tirelessly and also being um, a reformer you know he, he spoke out a lot he wasn't afraid to shake things up okay so um, the other thing that I'd like to just say a little bit more about is the influence of Amitabha because um, it's kind of related and I think socially engaged Buddhism, probably we can really only do socially engaged Buddhism if we are informed by a myth or if it's informed by a connection with something beyond us. I think otherwise we're just kind of doing something that's good. But if we're doing something that's good, that's powered by the Dharma, by the truth, by light, by radiance, by brilliance, we're, we're going to do something really magnificent in the world. And the world needs magnificent things, I believe. So yeah, I, I was ordained in 1995, and um, before that I had a solitary. And I had a very significant encounter with Amitabha. Um, what I'd always longed for a lot in my spiritual life was a quality of, of inner stillness. I kind of so wanted to be a still, quiet person. <laughs> And I so often felt a kind of agitated person. And so what I would do is I would sit on my energy. Go still. So it was a bit like putting a lid on a boiling pot. And it didn't work very well. So I just, I could kind of generate a sort of fake stillness for a bit, but it would generally it would blow up eventually. And I'd react or 
you know, have a big rant or something. So it was mysterious to me. I knew that people who practiced effectively had a quality of deep inner stillness. I knew that, but I had no idea how to cultivate that myself. So I was sitting meditating, facing in this direction. In fact, this is, this is spooky, because it's very like my, my whole position right now. So I was sitting, facing forwards, obviously, meditating in front of me. Meditating on this koan, I suppose it was a koan, how can I find stillness? And wondering which sadhana to take as well, that when I got ordained. Sadhana is an, an archetypal figure that in, exemplifies or embodies a particular quality of the enlightened mind. So I was wondering. And I was very drawn to very still figures, of course, thinking I want to be like, you know, White Tara or Pranya Paramitara or something. And feeling, why can't I be like that? So I was sitting there, and then it's like I got a voice from behind me. This is why it's spooky, because Amitabha is behind me now. And the voice said to me, the way to stillness is abandonment. It was like the voice of God. If I was a Christian, I would have thought it was the voice of God. And, but I knew it was the voice of Amitabha. I don't know why. Maybe I felt his presence. Maybe I saw him. I'm not sure. But the way to stillness is abandonment. Now that is a koan. You know, what does that mean? And there were images of water that came with that message. And it was, if you put a body of water in a confined space, you get hydroelectric power. You get massive turbulence or you get rapids. <coughs> yeah. If you put that same body of water in the ocean where there's no boundaries, you get stillness. So the message really was let go of your boundaries. Let go of your edges. And just give yourself to life. Abandon yourself to life. That was the message, I think. And abandon yourself to love. That was the message. So I got ordained, I took the Amitabha practice, and in a way that has been what I've been engaged in for the last 20 years. And it's very, very mysterious. You know, what does it mean to abandon yourself to life and abandon yourself to love? Um, but as I say that to you now, it's so inspiring. You know, it's like, that is, that is so my mission in my life. <laughs> You know, I feel so emotionally connected with that to abandon myself to this mysterious thing we call love and this extraordinary thing we call life and to be like a lotus that blooms in the fire. You know, that's really what I want. And it's very interesting that, um, you know, love and kindness have been very strong values while I'm here, but I wouldn't say I'm a naturally a very loving person. You know, my, my conditioning is quite, quite fearful. You know, my... my my deepest conditioning is in a way to kind of pull away from life in fear. So it was really wonderful to feel like I'm changing those most deepest, deepest patterning to flow out into life rather than to recoil from life in fear. And I still have a lot of fear, so it's not that it's gone away. But I think that the love may be on the scales. I think probably love is beginning to win this particular battle. Um... And, of course, my body's needed a huge amount of love. I couldn't have turned my life around the way I have without huge amounts of love for my body and my own heart, my own mind. And I, I know I can only love others if I can love myself. So that's been a really big part of my... I, I would say it's been a very profound healing when I've been in Manchester. And that's been, love has been a huge part of it. 
So, um, at the beginning, of, uh, out of Arden, read out that little bit I said about Amitabha. And I think, you know, that what I've been engaged with in my meditation and in my life is this mystery of, uh, of seeing if I can become more porous. I think that's the language which I would use. Because when you, when you do a, a, a visualisation practice, when you, when you get ordained, one of the elements is you have light coming into you. And when you're not porous, it kind of bounces off. <laughs> it's a bit like, um, do you know what I mean? If you've got a hard thing and you're pouring water onto a hard thing, it just slides over the edges, doesn't it? Whereas if you pour water into a sponge, it seeps into the sponge. So this whole idea of kind of opening myself to Amitabha's life, uh, Amitabha's light, has been a great part of my practice and, and mysterious because of course often I don't feel, I, I do feel rigid, reactive, angry, fed up, um, impermeable. But using this idea of Pratichya Samakapada, everything arises in dependence on causes and conditions, the more I actually practice being a porous person, being a porous being, then the more porous I become. So that becomes a habit. So I've been trying to cultivate a positive habit of being um, allowing in the light only in order for the light to go out again. So the light isn't coming in for me. It's more like I've become so porous that it's, it's just kind of light. There isn't kind of me owning it. There's just light pouring in and pouring out. And very often I do the metabhavana from that place. So it's a bit like Amitabha's doing the metabhavana for me, which is very lovely. So I'll just read you something from Bante, which I've always found very, very inspiring about this. Yeah, it's from Know Your Mind. He says, when you attain enlightenment, you no longer have a will that is separate from that of others. It's as though you utterly identify with others and with what they are doing. You no longer want one thing while they want another or want something from them they are unwilling to give. You don't experience another person as a sort of brick wall you are coming up against and you no longer experience yourself as a separate and conflicting solid force. You experience others in a completely different way. They become diaphanous or transparent because your will is not coming into collision with theirs. This completely different, more relaxed, lighter, freer attitude taken to the nth degree is something of the nature of enlightenment. The world is the same, but you see it differently. Yeah. So that's been one of the little te teachings I've reflected on very, very deeply and read a lot. I like this idea of becoming diaphanous and transparent and seeing others like that. And you can, you can cultivate that kind of view where other people aren't objects that are just designed to get in your way or being put on this earth to irritate you, but they just become the arising and the passing of conditions. And there's lightness in there and there's space in there. And it's just a dance, you and other people, the arising and the passing, the arising and the passing. And you are conditioning them every moment and they are conditioning you every moment. And then the motivation to become a positive conditioning influence on others becomes very great because it's the truth. Um, so those three ways I think have been very, very, very big things for me while I've been in Manchester turning towards my experience rather than escaping it, bringing my practice off the cushion into daily life and being under the influence of the big red Buddha. 
Yeah. So I'll just conclude by saying a wee bit about Breathworks because that's obviously been a big part of what I've been engaged in as well. Um, so for those of you that don't know, Breathworks is a, um, a right livelihood where we teach mindfulness and kindness to people in the world. Uh, originally it was people with pain and illness, but now we take it into healthcare, schools, um, all kinds of places. It's, the world's kind of woken up that there's this extraordinary thing called mind training and heart training. It's got this label mindfulness and they want it. And we're in a position where we're able to provide it because we've developed the skills at Breathworks to offer everything that we know in a language that's accessible to people in the world. So I think it did grow out very much from my journey of, from escapism to life itself because in, in a way this motivation to go out, out into the world is very, very powerful for me. I often think about this, there's 70 million people in the United Kingdom and maybe, I don't know, 2,000 go to Buddhist centres. So what about the other 69 million? So how do we kind of go out into the world to really share this extraordinary gift that we've got which is the perspective on life from the Buddha? You know, we suffer because we, we, we've got wrong, we've got misperception all the time. And it's really quite simple to communicate the, the idea that uh, to be mindful, to be aware, make choices about what you do with your mind and your heart. You can change your life and you can change other people's lives. It's not a complicated message. Um, but I feel that really, uh, more than anything, it's an expression of my love of Amitabha. So I often think that Amitabha founded Breathworks, not me. And I really like that. I really, really like that. So it was not mine. Because actually, if, if I thought it was mine, I would get a bit overwhelmed. Because it is a bit of a galloping horse these days. But if you just kind of, like, like, like right now, it's, I can sort of feel this kind of heat coming off Amitabha <laughs> and coming through me. And it is just the expression of this you know, Amitabha is, is um, I suppose, the Bodhisattva ideal, gaining enlightenment for the sake of all beings. And that's all beings, not just beings that are lucky enough to make their way to a Buddhist center. The Dalai Lama, this is really good. Someone asked him a question, what is the most important meditation? And very quickly he replied, very, very quickly, discern this human drama, no, sorry, what he, what he said quickly was critical thinking followed by action. He didn't say, certainly cushion, do the mindfulness of breathing. He said critical thinking followed by action. And he went on to say, discern this human drama, then figure out what is your talent to make it a better world. That's great, isn't it? Yeah? Discern this human drama, then figure out what is your talent to make it a better world. That's very altruistic. It's not about, this, like with Hakuin, just sitting up a hill, silently illuminating yourself. It's make the, the world your meditation cave. And another phrase that somebody said to me, um, it may even have been Artifadan, I'm not sure. Anyway, a coach at some point said, uh, only do what only you can do. It's very good that, isn't it? Only do what only you can do. And in a way, because of my life, my life circumstances, I've got this very unique set of conditions where I've got a disability, I've, I've lived with a great deal of pain, and I've had 20, 30 years of Dharma practice. So I'm uniquely suited to bring those two things together to offer that gift to the world. Um, 
so there's a particular contribution that probably only I can make. And I find that quite helpful. And there's many, many things I could do with my life, but probably this is something that only I can do and it is beneficial for people. So I can plant the seed of the truth in other people's hearts. The other thing is that with Breathworks, I found a way to support myself. Now that's a huge thing. You know, when you've got a body that can't go to work nine to five, then how do you f find a way of surviving in this world that we live in where we do need incomes and things, you know, our, our society. And then I've also been, through, through my work, I've been able to create, create right livelihood, I think, for probably hundreds of people. I find that very inspiring. There's probably hundreds of people now around the world who are able to teach what we've got in lots of different languages and lots of different countries to all these people who are suffering. And also, through that, I'm able to contribute to the Exchequer. That's really, really important to me. We live in this country in the UK. It's extraordinary. You get free healthcare. I mean, I, I have cost the state probably hundreds of thousands of pounds in healthcare, surgery and so on. So to get to a point where I can give something back is really, really important. We, we have roads that are vaguely smooth. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody pays for that. You know, we have education. We, kids go to school. Um, we, have, we live in a, a, a society where, where we're very privileged, very, very privileged in the West. And a lot of that's funded by, you know, the taxpayer. So for me to be able to directly pay tax and have a business, create a business where other people take pay tax is really important to me. And I think that is in a way part of <coughs> socially engaged Buddhism. I think we should pay tax. That wasn't in my notes and I haven't really thought that through, but I think that's probably <laughs> true. Yeah. So I'm just going to um, end um, with an image. No, I'll say just one thing before that. Um, I'd just like to express my gratitude to the Buddhist Centre, the Manchester Buddhist Centre. Moksha Priya was the chair when I first started Breathworks, and I think he always saw the benefit of what we were doing. That it is the kind of social... The charity has all kinds of aims, and contributing to society is one of them. So he's always very, very supportive, and all the way through the it's nearly 15 years now that I've been able to develop Breathworks. The Manchester Buddhist Centre has been incredibly supportive. We have an office upstairs. We um, use the shrine rooms. And again, it's fantastic that we can pay for that. So we're contributing to the NBC by paying rent. And I remember when we first came here, I, I always said to Moksh Priya, I want to pay commercial rent. You know, I want us to be a business that is contributing properly to the NBC. That was very, very important to me. I don't think we did pay commercial rent for a long time, but nonetheless, that aspiration was there. I didn't want it to be, we, we were getting handouts. I wanted us to be actively contributing to the Sangha, to the upkeep of this building and the, the bigger vision of what's happening here. So now I'll finish with an image that um, is a kind of metaphor for, for what I'm trying to do with my life. And the image is of a sun, S-U-N, that's blazing in darkness. So you've got dark all around and you've got this big blazing sun. And for me, the order, the Buddhist center, Tri Ratna, is the heart of the sun. So the sun, the brightness, is what I feel I've been given by Sangharachita, my teacher. 
it's this complete path to gain complete freedom with friendship, with myth, with ritual, meditation, ethics, everything. So it's this bright blazing sun. And then the sun's got the rays going out into the darkness and there's the point where the light meets the darkness and that's what I feel breathworks is. So it's that point, you know, you're interfacing with real suffering often. And of course the brighter the sun, the further it shines into the darkness. And for a long time I had a lot of conflict around what I should be doing. You know, maybe I should just forget about breathworks and just work for the Buddhist centre, but then of course I needed to earn a living and you get all complicated. So I had all this conflict for years and actually this image has kind of resolved it for me and I need to do both. For me, as this particular human being, I just need to do both. I need to work way out in the world and I need to do everything I can to keep the sun burning as brightly as possible and contribute to the Sangha, contribute to the Buddhist centre, contribute to the order, lead retreats, all that kind of stuff. So I like that image where you've got the sun and you've got the point where it meets darkness. And uh, so I kind of resolve that conflict by just thinking, well, I need to do both. And I'm very happy to do both. And in a way, my whole 20 years in Manchester has perhaps been working all that out. And um, we've, yeah, we've got Breathworks teachers in how many countries? 20 something countries? Almost Sorry? Almost 20. Almost 20 countries, yeah. So it's pretty amazing, you know. 10 years or so and we've, able, we've definitely impacted probably tens of thousands of people's lives around the world. I don't have any doubt about that. So yeah, huge gratitude to the NBC, to Arta Varden as our current amazing chair. <laughs> yeah, so thank you very, very much and thank you for coming tonight. <laughs>